Solving Impossible Problems or Impossible Situations is the title of the message today. And I think we would all agree, looking at the circumstance here, that from man's perspective, we certainly were dealing with an impossible situation. We're also dealing with a passage that is most familiar to anyone that's had any knowledge of the Bible at all, whether they've read it or not, they've heard the story. But as I like to do, I'd like to stimulate your thinking right away so that you immediately start thinking of some application even for your own life and my, my life as well. A couple of questions that I have. Is your God, this morning, is your God omnipotent? That is, is he really all-powerful? And now I would say that anyone who's been a Christian for any length of time would say, theoretically, yes, he is. But I want to ask you this morning, is your God really omnipotent in your everyday life? Is that the way we envision him, see him? Can you really trust God for impossible situations? When there are situations where there's no remedy from a human perspective, do you really turn to God? Can you trust him? Can I trust him? And when you and I get into very difficult situations, not our everyday just simple run-of-the-mill difficulties, but very difficult situations, whether that be economically, politically, socially, whatever they might be, how often in those situations do we recall what God has already done for us? When we're in that situation, how often do we right then and there automatically take our focus off of the difficulty and put our focus onto Him and what He has already done in our lives? That is, in our past, since believing. Or, are we a people just like Israel, though in the 21st century, far removed from the time when the Lord Jesus Christ was on the earth? Are we just like Israel back in the Old Testament? And to put that in perspective, keep your finger here and turn with me to Psalm 78 so you understand what I mean by that. Psalm 78. Many of us know the history of Israel and how God had chosen them and all that God had done for them. In Psalm 78, verse 41, just a couple of verses, as the Lord rehearses through this psalm all that God had done, you'll notice verse 41, and again, and again, they, that is his people, tempted God. Really? Yes. And they pained the Holy One of Israel. How did they do that? Verse 42. They did not remember his power. Stop right there. That's what I'm talking about. When we get in a difficult, even impossible situations... Do we remember the power of God? Verse 42. And what? The day when they, when, excuse me, he redeemed them from the adversity. 
Number one, Israel had forgotten the power of God in their history. Number two, though they had been redeemed as a people, and all that God had done for them, they forgot the redemption. They forgot what God was doing for them specifically. Is that the way we are in the 21st century? And we'd like to say, no, we're not. But again, as you and I face difficulties, real impossible situations, where do we look? Do we automatically rehearse what God has done? Do we automatically go back to moving beyond theory and actually seeing our God and his power? Israel had limited him, and they failed, and they murmured, and they complained, as you know, and failed time and time again. Go back to John chapter 6. Well, we come to this most familiar passage. We are coming, for those of you that have been with us in the study of John, we are now coming to the fourth sign, and that is significant because John, and you'll see it again this morning, John has specifically chosen certain things for us, signs as he referred to them, not all that Jesus did, but certain ones so that, don't forget this, so that we might understand that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, that's why he's chosen what he's chosen, and in doing so, that we might come to believe in him and have eternal life. He has already turned, the first three signs we saw was water into wine, He's already healed the nobleman's son, and most recently, in chapter 5, healed the impotent man. And it's interesting because as we come to the fourth sign, this outside of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, outside of that miracle, and I put it in that category, the commentaries basically say this is the only one. Well, I would put resurrection as a miracle. Outside of the resurrection, this is the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels. The only one. Interesting. With all the miracles that he did, this is the only one that all four give account to outside of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it gives us a lot to compare to. As we pick it up right away in verse 1, we find it says, and after these things. And I need to get you into the background and so forth before we bring out the aspects that I've already challenged you on. After these things is an expression we've already seen in chapter 5. It is an indefinite period of time. It is not the next day, not that expression you'll recall. And I want to put it in perspective for you because, again, we can lose that as we read through our Bible, especially when you come to passages like this that you're so familiar with. Why? How much time has elapsed between verse 47 of chapter 5 and chapter 6, verse 1? Let me put it in perspective. About six months to a year. Well, how do you know that? Well, first of all, I'm not going to get into the depth of it, but if you look at verse 4, it says, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And if we were to compare that just with chapter 5, in chapter 5, there was a feast of the Jews at hand, in chapter 5, verse 1. And as we compare to the gospel accounts, we would find out that at a minimum, six months has elapsed just between those verses. But in all probability, we're dealing with about a year later since chapter 5 ended. 
And a lot has transpired where the Lord's done a lot of other miracles and the Lord's been involved in many, many things. In fact, to help you a little bit with the perspective, if you go back for a moment to chapter 4, I believe it is, chapter 4, yes, verse uh, 3. He left Judea and departed again into Galilee. In chapter 4 was the beginning of his Galilean ministry. When we come to chapter 6, we are at the end of the Galilean ministry. All the other Gospels concentrate chapter after chapter after chapter as to what happened in Galilee. John only picks the beginning and the end. Why? He's got a purpose. Only to pick those things that he wants to really focus in on that show the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. It shows us his selection. So a lot of time has uh, elapsed, and if you want to get the detail, that's why you study the other Gospels. Because John just jumps ahead now to the end of his ministry in the Galilean area. And as he does, it says that after these things, he went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and he also says, or Tiberias. It's related to that because the, the, of the city of Tiberias, which was on the east, I should say on the west side. Uh, on the west side was Tiberias, and then you had the Sea of Galilee. Some of you have been there. If we were to compare the accounts, he left by boat, and he traveled over to the other side, so he would be going to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, near Bethsaida. And as he went... He really had a purpose because as we compare the accounts, according to Matthew chapter 14, which I won't turn to, and Mark chapter 6, he wanted to get alone. He needed some time alone because he had been constantly busy with the disciples. And I'll quote from Mark chapter 6. He says this, There was no leisure time even to eat. That's what it says in Mark chapter 6. He was so busy that he didn't even have time to have leisure to eat because the people were surrounding him. And so his purpose in going to the other side was to get away from the crowds, to be with his disciples, to be alone with them, to get some well-needed rest and some time. And so he comes to the other side, and it says uh, that a great multitude followed him, and I'll come right back to that in a second. But it says... Uh, when they were seeing the miracles he did. In verse 3, for a second, Jesus went up on the mountain, or the mountainside. That's what he's dealing with. Now, to put that in perspective for the 21st century, that is the area called the Golan Heights. You've heard that in the news, especially in the past. So if you think of the Sea of Galilee, you've got Tiberias on one side, and as you go across, you've got the Golan Heights, and that was a hillside. In fact, you could see into during that war and so forth. That's how the enemy saw into the Israel uh, area where the people were living and were able to shoot and so forth. And it would be on that mountainside that he is there. And what you've got is a crowd now back in verses 2 and 3 that follow him, a great multitude. And it's interesting because, and the, the sense is brought out here in the text that I read, in the translation that I read, because it's an imperfect tense all the way through. The great multitude was following him because they were seeing the signs which he was performing, and the idea is they were continually seeing what he was doing. They were continually coming upon him because they saw and were beholding that the Lord Jesus Christ was continually performing miracles, specifically of healing. And so they were following him. And I want you to get this right away because it will help you to, at the end of the message in verses 14 and 15. 
Why were they following him? Was it because they wanted to seek the Lord Jesus Christ because of their spiritual difficulties? No. Were they coming to follow Jesus because they saw that they were sinners and he could provide forgiveness of sins? Not at all. That's not why they're going after him. All these crowds following him, they're ready to seek after that name, but they weren't seeking him for any spiritual benefit whatsoever. They were simply seeing what he was doing, and they wanted more of it so that they could get benefit from him in physical ways. Hopefully, whatever their needs might be. That's made very clear as you compare. They were not seeking him for the right reasons. Please hold on to that. Because the people we minister to, you've heard messages from me even recently about those who are seeking after Jesus and why are they going after him? You need to understand, you're living in a century right now where people are attaching the name of Jesus Christ to their list just like everybody else. And they treat him like he's a god among gods. But we don't look at it that way. These people were seeking Jesus not because of their sin, not because they needed a Savior, because they saw miracles. That's why they were seeking Him. The amazing thing is when you compare the accounts, especially in Mark, early on at this stage, it says as the Lord saw them coming across the shore, He had compassion on them. He had sought to get away from them, and He saw them coming, and yet He still had compassion. We want to see the honest assessment that happens here. So he goes to the other side. The Passover's in hand. And I want to look at verses 5. I'm going to skip 7. I'll come back. Uh, 6. I'll come back to it. Look at 5 and then 7 through 9. And I'll tell you why as I read them again. Jesus, therefore, lifting up his eyes and seeing the great multitude coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread that these may eat? Now we'll skip 6 and come back to it. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Let's put that into context and in the honest assessment here. According to the gospel accounts, as you would compare it, and I haven't done that because it would take all morning and afternoon to just take each one of the accounts and expand on it. So you can check it on your own. But you'll find that it's, even as this text says, when he saw the crowd coming to him. That's what it says, right? Yeah. He lifted up his eyes. He had gotten across on the boat with his disciples. He's on the mountainside, and he can see the great multitude coming toward him. Now, what is that? According to the accounts, he saw them literally, according to Mark, running along the seashore. Now, if you've been to the Middle East, and if you haven't, I'll help you with it. As you go across the sea from Tiberias, there is a seashore that comes all the way along. And Capernaum's there and so forth. And so as he's in the Golan Heights, Golan Heights, sitting down, he can see this multitude, this mass of people. And according to Mark, they're running along the seashore to get to him. So this is early in the day now. That's sometimes the perspective that's lost. It's early in the day, and he sees the multitude coming toward him, and he apparently asks two questions. What are the questions? 
Well, one of them we see very clearly here. Where are we going to buy enough bread to feed these people? And he asked that early. And the second thing that becomes obvious when you compare the accounts, especially Mark and Matthew, is what's available? What's available to feed them? Where are we going to go to get the bread and what's available to feed them? That is what results in the difficulties that are brought up by both Philip and Andrew. And I'd like you to put that in perspective. We know that there's at least 5,000. I'll comment on that in a second. And we read this as if it's nothing. You want it in perspective? What's it like when we feed 100 people? And we ask for the sign-up sheets and food to come in. I'll tell you because sometimes I, every time I go to the kitchen and say, what do you want us to do? And I've been there a number of times and said, I don't know if we get enough food to feed these people. We only got 100 people. Why? A lot of people didn't bring anything. Who's going to clean up? Well, I don't know. Everybody wants to go home. Who's going to set up? I don't know. Hopefully somebody's going to take care of that. You think about it. Well, I said this afternoon, we'll have an announcement. I'll pick one of you, okay? Would that be good? We're all going over to your house. Fifty of us will be there this afternoon. No problems with logistics, right? You can feed us all. Right. Don't pick my house, Pastor Dan. Right? You know what I'm saying. See the practicality? We look at this and say 5,000 people, no problem, yeah, whatever. Look at the logistics. The Lord was being honest with them. What are we going to do? Look at all these people coming. How are we going to feed them, guys? Now, he knew what he was going to do. And, and look at them. Yeah, what, you know what? Take an inventory. Find out what, what we have. And let's see what we can do. Now, I think it is significant, by the way, that he does choose Philip. Because Philip, we know from Scripture, was from that area. What does that tell you? Well, if somebody came into this area and said, Pastor Dan, where do we go shopping? Even though I don't do the shopping, I could, I could direct them to certain malls and so forth. I know the area. So he chooses Philip, to, and Philip's the one in this conversation. He's from the area of Bethsaida. We know that because the Scripture reveals that to us. He knows the area. Where are you going to get the bread, Philip? I don't know. If we had enough money, I don't know where we could buy the bread. So what's the report? The honest assessment is insufficient funds. Number one, how do we get that? Just so you put it in today's perspective, it talks about a denarii. What is that? A denarii, verse 7, was the equivalent of a day's wages. So whatever you make, whether it's a $10 a day or $10,000 a day, it's a day's wages for the average person. That's what it was. Now, he says if we don't have, if we had 200 denarii, that's not enough. Now put that in perspective. That's approximately seven to eight months' wages. His assessment is, Lord, if we had three-quarters of our wages for the year, we don't have enough money to buy bread. There's too many people. That's the perspective. Take what you earn, okay, in seven to eight months, and that's what it takes to just feed these people. That's the perspective in time. Not only that, he says the inventory is pretty low. Why? All we found was a boy with five loaves and two fishes. And you know the story. That's it. He bought a bag lunch. So I tell you what, next week when we have our basket lunch, somebody bring five loaves and two fishes, and we'll feed everybody, okay? We'll do that. Mm-mm. See, it's impossible from a human perspective. So what's going on here? The insufficient funds and limited food. 
impossible situation from man's perspective. What's the reason for the Lord doing this? Look at verse 6. There it is. And by the way, one more point. You heard me emphasize it when I read it. In verse 7, he says, even if we had that money, there would not be sufficient for everyone to receive what? A little bit. If we had all that money and bought all that bread, they, they can't even, you know, they're going to go away hungry. They're going to go away saying, what the church dinner that was? Stingy people that didn't even provide enough food for us. Mm -mm. Verse 6. Here's the reason. And don't miss this as many times as you read this passage. This he was saying to test him. That's Philip. He knew what he was going to do. Did he know what he was going to do in a few minutes? Absolutely. Why? He tells us that in verse 6. He knew what he was intending to do. But he was testing Philip. He was testing, listen to this, the ones that knew him. The ones that had, quote unquote, faith in him. He was testing those who just saw the miracles that he had been doing. Not like the crowd who's trying to follow him, but the ones who were on the inside. He was testing what? Their faith. Now I want to say something right away. Apparently with Philip and Andrew and the apostles, I'll comment on that in a second, there was no connection, none, between what Jesus had just done in their life and with what he was about to do or could do. None. Change the water to wine. Just take what John has given us. They knew that. He healed the nobleman's son. They knew that. He just healed the impotent man that no one could even care about. They knew that. They were his disciples. And now they're looking and they're saying, I don't know what we're going to do. No connection between what God had been doing in their life and the problem in front of them. How often does that happen to us? Secondly and worse, apparently there is no realization whatsoever, now get this, as to who it is that's in their midst. Not only what he did, but there is no mental connection as to who Jesus Christ really is. None. Oh, they're following him. They've followed him to the seashore. They're alone with him. Multitude hasn't got there. They're coming. And they don't even connect as to who it is they've really trusted in. None. We say we trust in Christ. We say we believe on him. And I am absolutely amazed in my own personal life, in others' lives who profess faith, in the congregation's life, when difficulties come and people, what are we going to do? Now where do I turn? Oh, I know I need to pray to God, but I don't know how I'm going to get out of this situation. What's gonna, what, what is God doing? No connection. This was to test their faith. 
This was to test their knowledge of him. There's the two elements. The purpose of this feeding of 5,000 wasn't just to provide food. Don't miss that. It was to test those that knew him. To test their faith in him, number one, and to test to see, do you really know who I am? That's who it is. And by the way, their faith failed badly. It's obvious. Why? Do you know what their solution is? And this is where you look at the accounts and you see the early questions coming and the time the people have gotten there and they make the assessment and so forth. Here is their assessment. Let me turn you to one of them. Go to Matthew 14 for a second. Keep your finger in John. Matthew 14. Watch this. These are the people that know him. These are the people that profess his name. These are the people who say they have faith in him, who will lay down their lives for him. Matthew 14, look at verse 15. And when it was evening, time has now elapsed. Watch. The disciples came to him saying, the place is desolate, the time has already passed, send the multitude away that they can go into the village and buy food for themselves. We can't do it. That's their assessment. That's his disciples. His, their assessment, yeah, we got five loaves, we got two fishes, we don't have enough money, send them away. Get them out of here. Let them go find their own food. Can you imagine that? Now, you and I can sit here in the 21st century and say, what fools? Right. How many people does God bring upon our doorstep? And we don't turn them to the Savior. How many circumstances of life do we get into that are indeed impossible from a human perspective? And we say we trust in Christ, but honestly, have you ever done that in your heart? You say, I know he can't answer it, but I, I don't think he's going to. I don't know that he can really do that. And we begin to do what Israel did. We begin to limit his power. We begin to realize that we don't know our Savior the way we think we do. It hasn't got that close a relationship. Their solution is send them away. Let them go home. Let them find their own food. Let me tell you this. We will be tested. We will be tested to prove our faith. And I'll give you some references to save time. You can turn on them on your own. But 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, it says, When our faith is tested, it is to be counted more precious than gold. When God brings a test into your life and my life, we ought to see that that is to test our faith in Him. Secondly, it tells us in James chapter 1, you're most familiar with that, James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, that it is to help us to grow. Why did God bring this test into his disciples' lives? Don't just look at the feeding of the 5,000. He brought it into their life so they would grow. What do you mean grow? In their knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. In their knowledge of how faith works in everyday life. And you and I are tested, have been tested, and will be tested. 
Will we look back to what he's done and still have the faith to move forward in the circumstances? What form will it come in your life and mine? I don't know. It might come in finances. It could come in food. It could come physically. It could come spiritually. It could come morally. Maybe it's a loss of job. Maybe it's a loss of health. Maybe it's a challenge where you're ridiculed or put down or spoken about. I don't know what form is going to come in your life or my life, but it's coming. Why? Because all who walk godly will indeed be tested and persecuted. It's going to happen. All the things that are done in the name of Christianity behind the scenes, it is absolutely appalling. Appalling. And the Lord sees it all. All. He knows what our faith really is. We want to think we're the most spiritual people in the world. And all of a sudden we get a cut in our finger and we don't know what to do. We get some financial difficulty that comes up and all of a sudden God's not big enough anymore. And we're panicking. It happens to those who profess faith in Christ. Human inadequacy, that's easy in your notes. Man's failure seen in Andrew failing, Philip failing, and all the other apostles. I don't see one apostle coming forward and saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, you're the Christ. You can do this. Not a one of them. Not a single one of them. Come forward. It's impossible because it's obvious the resources aren't there. There's not enough food. There's not enough finances. And there are no shopping centers. No human effort. No human wisdom. No human philosophy. And no human religious act is going to solve this problem. And that, by the way, my friend, is a picture of salvation. There is possible for anyone to get saved by any other way than through Jesus Christ. You can test all the religions of the world. You can try by your own efforts. You can try whatever resources you want. Study all your life. Do whatever. Pray all you want. And none of that will satisfy your soul. The only one that can and will is the same one who was able to satisfy this situation, and that is Jesus Christ. What I put in my notes is it's impossible for my human perspective. But when human inadequacy is there, it's a golden opportunity for God to demonstrate his power, his wisdom, and his glory. And that's exactly what he's going to do. Impossible situation to man. Great opportunity for God to demonstrate his power, his wisdom, and his glory. So let's take a look at that. Verses 10 to 15, quickly. In those verses we read, and Jesus said, have the people sit down. I want you to notice how he addressed his disciples, first of all. That might even sound strange to us, have the people sit down. You notice what he didn't do? He didn't rebuke his disciples. Would you hold on to that? He didn't rebuke them. They failed. They failed badly. They didn't make the connection. He didn't turn around and say, I'm done with you. To Philip, what's the matter with you? Get away from me. All this time and all you've seen, 
And he's going to be the one that later on, he's going to turn around and say, Philip, I've been all this time. Don't you know when you've seen me, you've seen the Father? But he doesn't turn around and say, Philip, go home. I've had enough of you. You know that's what we do to people? People have a failure, and we never let it go. They're no good for service anymore in our eyes. That's what happens. It's not true with the Lord. In fact, what does he do? God works through them to solve the problem. He uses even their failing faith and uses them to still resolve the problem. Why? Because God is working through weak vessels all the time. What do we do? We dwell on our failures. I do that. When we fail, don't tell me you don't do that sometimes. We get down and, okay, Lord, I blew this one, I blew that situation. God doesn't do that with us. We browbeat ourselves. We dwell on our failures. God does not do that. He uses them anyway for his honor and glory. Why? What's the purpose? To test their faith and to teach them about him. And in our life, he'll see that. When you fail God, what are you to do? Quit? There are people that desert churches. That's it. I'm not going to church anymore. Why? Because in their personal life, something came up. I can't go back there. People will know me again. That's foolish. Or if the church has done something, never going to go back there again. That's foolish. The eyes are in the wrong place. God is going to use us in spite of our weaknesses. You want examples? How about David? David was nothing but a shepherd boy. Look at how God used him greatly over all those people that are ready to fight, right? And here comes a young kid along. Hey, he's speaking against God. I'll go fight Goliath. God used a weak vessel. And by the way, was there sin in David's life? Absolutely. And God continued to use him. Moses, I can't speak, Lord. How are you going to send me? No self-confidence whatsoever. And God used him. He was still available. Gideon. We all know the story of Gideon. Kids love to sing about that. You know what the situation was with Gideon? He was, the most, he was part of the smallest tribe and the most insignificant in Israel. And God used him to defeat the armies. What about you and me? We're the same way. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 makes it very clear that he hasn't chosen the wonderful, great things of the world. I heard somebody recently talk about it. <clears throat> I was away for a few days this week, as you know, this past week. <clears throat> and I, had, uh, I was with an unsaved man talking with him, and he was talking about boats. And he was talking about a particular boat. And this guy, by the way, owns a boat. He's a commercial fisherman. But as I was talking with him, he was talking about this particular boat. And what did he say? He said, that's the snobbish area. Those are the people that think they're above everybody else. Their boat can't be touched. Their thing can't be touched. It was interesting. It was an unsaved man as he was talking about them. And that's the category. that isn't the way God chooses people. What God chooses is the likes of you and me. And he wants us to be used for his honor and glory. And even when we fail, he makes us part of a solution. And that's what he did with them. He simply said to them, have the people sit down. And what did they do? They obeyed. So let me give you a guideline there. When you fail God, continue to obey him. 
oh, confess your sin if there's sin in your life, but get back up on your feet and start obeying him again. That's what they did. In verse 10, they obeyed. They got the people to sit down. You notice he organized the people according to the scriptures. It was in 50s and 100s. They sat down in groups. Why? I believe God does things orderly. It would be a little easier to distribute to them. Just some simple observations. <clears throat> now it says there was much grass in the place. That does help us with the timing. It was probably springtime tied in with the Passover. So what happened? They sat down. Now we know from the scriptures it was about 5,000 men. That tells us something. Some people have guessed 10,000, 15,000. I don't know. But we do know there were 5,000 men, not including women and children. And there were women and children there. There were a lot of people. And he organizes them. They sit down. And then you notice what he does, verse 11. <clears throat> Took the loaves and he gave thanks. It's the first thing he did. He gave thanks. He didn't ask. We usually do that at meals. I do that all the time, don't you? Ask the Lord's blessing on the meal. He doesn't even ask the Lord's blessing, the Father's blessing. He thanks him. Why? He knew the God of the universe, obviously. He is the God-man, obviously. But also, he knew that God was the one that could provide, and he thanked God for it. Some of you have read stories of Mueller and how in situations where he'd have the orphanage children sitting down and there wasn't a thing on the table and he would give thanks and then God would provide. Do you have that type of faith? Could you right now, if you lost every penny that you had and had no food in the house, go down after this service, sit down on the floor if you didn't have a table or a chair, and give God thanks because you knew he was going to provide? That's real faith. That's not testing. I'm saying everything's been removed. That's where the faith will show. That, that's where it shows as to whether you know God and who he really is as the all-powerful God, as the one who will provide. And I want you to notice something else since I emphasize the other side of it. It says he distributed, by the way, in verse 11. He did that through the disciples. We know that from the other accounts. He gave them and he let them go among the people. He made them part of the solution again. He didn't discard them. But you notice what it says at the end of verse 11? Likewise, also the fish as much as they wanted. The apostles' assessment was 200 denarii will buy a lot of bread. They'll be lucky to get a little bit. Take what you have, and they were full. Full. They didn't think they'd get a little. They get enough. I want you to see that picture, by the way. These loaves. Now, how did it happen? Did the loaves just start multiplying, falling out of the baskets? I don't think so. I think too much in the commentaries get lost in all of that stuff. This was to test their faith. They just simply went among their midst, and it never ran out. It never ran out, fish or bread. And they were filled as much as they wanted. So if there were people that just wanted a little, it was fine. People that wanted a lot, it was fine. Because it says in verse 12, they were filled. Absolutely stuffed. You ever gone away from a meal like that? I've done that. I love dessert. I love ice cream. I love blueberry pie, things like that and so forth. But there's been some times I've eaten and said, put a blueberry pie in front of me or an ice cream, and I said, 
later. I'll get there, but not now. Just absolutely full. Right? They were filled. And he says to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing be lost. No waste. If you know the account, there was 12 baskets that were full. And I found this interesting. Again, the commentaries dwelt on, you know, there's 12 baskets because there's 12 apostles and then they had to eat. And there's, some of them said it's because there's 12 tribes. Others said because it represents the apostles in Israel. I don't know. I'll be honest with you. I don't know any of that, but I do know this. There was 12 baskets that were full. And I want you to notice this also. He says nothing of the fish. Why? I don't think I would want pots of the fish coming back. Would you? There was just enough. It's, it's perfect to see what God's doing. He knew exactly. All the fish got eaten, and bread was taken, and the Lord didn't want to lose anything. And that is also true even when it comes to salvation. There isn't one person that God will miss that's supposed to be saved. So you better get out there and keep witnessing. And I. Absolutely full. Who knows? I don't know. But he is able to meet all of our needs. Is that your God today? Is that the one that you've trusted in, the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you really see him as being able, even in impossible situations, to meet all of our needs, even that which we can't imagine? Just looking at the logistics of this, and I close with this, because we need to close, but verses 14 and 15 are amazing. But we have to see it. What happened is, he collects it all, the fragments, nothing had left. And therefore, first of all, there's a connection, verse 14. But I want you to see the insight and discernment of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in verse 14, they remembered that Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, said there was going to be another prophet like unto him. And that's probably what they're referring to in verse 14. This is of truth the prophet who is to come into the world. And if the average Christian, even in this room, stopped right there, what we would turn around and say, praise the Lord, they're all coming to Jesus. Wait a minute. Why did they come to Jesus? They came because they saw the miracles that he was doing. Why did they say, praise the Lord, this is the prophet that's to come into the world? Because he just did a miracle for them. Who was this test for? For the people? No. For his disciples that they might understand the one they've trusted in, that they might understand who God really is and what he's like. And that's why verse 15, I believe personally, even though there's a break in my Bible, I believe verse 15 is connected. Why? They had the wrong view of the Messiah. Look at verse 15. Jesus, therefore, perceiving that they, who they? The people who just said, this is the prophet that came into the world intending to come to take him by force to make him king. You see? What was there? They saw that they had a miracle worker in their midst, but they saw a king. Why? To get victory over Rome. To give them the material things they wanted in their life. Do you know how many people in the 21st century are coming to look to Jesus because he can provide a better life for them or they can escape something as opposed to seeing him as the Messiah, Jesus would have nothing to do with them. How do you know that? That's what it says. He withdrew 
and got alone, not even with his disciples. But he withdrew by himself. He didn't want people coming to him just because he could satisfy their needs. There are people, there are TV programs, you've heard me say this, that people are attracted to in droves because of miracles, quote, unquote. Or they'll come to Jesus and add him to their life if the life is going to be easier. But that doesn't make a person a saved person. A person must come to Christ as the Messiah and as the one who died on the cross for their sins. That's the one the Lord Jesus Christ reaches out to for true salvation. We need to be careful even in our presentation of the gospel. If people who would not want to come to Jesus if they saw him as a miracle worker and going to provide everything happy in their life, that's not why Jesus came. Or that he could be king and would have no more war in the world in Iraq and Afghanistan, no more wars and would get delivered from all of this and oh, let just peace come and God can do it. Yes, God can do that. And by the way, it is going to happen in the millennial after God deals with the tribulation and pours his wrath out on men because they didn't want him as he truly is. You know what's going to happen in chapter 6? Because I probably won't get to it for a while. I'm going to tell you. The people are going to turn on a dime. What do you mean? Not too long from now in this chapter, the multitudes, first of all today, they flocked to him. You know what's going to happen by the end of the chapter? They're all going to leave him. You know why? They're not getting what they want. There are a lot of people professing faith in Christ. It's a cause to examine ourselves. Who are going to Jesus for what they can get. His popularity grew tremendously. The crowds are following him, and the Pharisees are concerned it's growing so big. And in just a very short period of time, he's going to have no popularity whatsoever. He'll continue to teach the truth, but everybody's going to desert. Why? It's not what they were looking for. Not what they were looking for. And I'll tell you right now, some of the friends you witness to, some of the people, and when they see what the cost of salvation is in following Christ, they will turn. People are fickled. When everything tickles their ears and goes the way they want, they will follow in droves. But when things change, they'll turn on a dime. You say, Pastor Dan, I don't know what you're talking about. Look at the passage. They flocked to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to make him king the way they wanted. But that's not why Jesus came. And he will continue. You get the walking on the water, and he's going to continue to talk to them about the word, and they're not going to want that type of Messiah. We need to be careful. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning, I have to wrap this up. Let me ask you about this. Do you know him the way you should? Is it theory or is it practice? This was to test his disciples. This was to test Philip, Andrew, the apostles, the ones that knew him. Tests will come into our life to test our faith, to test how well we know Christ, how we can depend upon him. Might God help us to pass the test? 
And when our faith fails, let me encourage you. Don't quit. Don't give up. The Lord didn't give up on them. He didn't put them on a shelf. He used them still to be part of a solution. But if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning, let me tell you that it's impossible, just like with this situation of feeding 5,000, it's impossible for you to save yourself. It's impossible for you to have a right relationship with God on your own. But Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, has made it possible. And he is the only way. And you must come to the one who provided the food and who also can provide food and satisfaction and rest for your soul. And that's only found in Jesus Christ. Because on the authority of God, he is the only name given among men whereby we must be saved. Trust in him and you'll be given forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in God, I thank you for your graciousness this morning. Father, how many times have we read this feeding of the 5,000? Lord, often we look at the crowds, we look at the disciples, we shake our heads at them. How could they miss it? And yet, Father, so often things come up in our life to test our faith, and we fail. We thank you, Father, that you have compassion on us. You still desire to use us. And I pray that you'd help us as individuals and as a congregation to stay faithful in trusting you, to stay faithful in preaching the word, and to stay faithful in looking to you, the author and finisher of our faith, who will never, ever fail us, nor forsake us. And I pray that you'd open up the understanding of the blind who might not know Christ, that they might see not only can you provide physically, but more importantly for the spiritual need as all are sinners and come short of the glory of God. Every man and woman must face death. But the gift of God is found in eternal life coming from Jesus Christ. And might they come to him and trust in him today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.